the racial politics of the NBA have always been ugly. By J. Caspian Kong. In Blackball, a new book about black players in the National Basketball Association in the 1970s, Teresa Runstetler, a professor at American University and a former member of the Toronto Raptors dance team, lays out a compelling history of the league and the origins of what we today call player empowerment. One case study is the arc of Spencer Haywood, who, as a 19-year-old from Silver City, Mississippi, strained to remain apolitical while playing in the 1968 Olympics, he made the team only because stars like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Wes Unseld had sat out as part of an unofficial boycott, and spent the rest of his career battling exploitative professional contracts in both the NBA and its rival at the time, the American Basketball Association. As a 20-year-old star at the University of Detroit, Haywood had played on an all-black starting five, a rarity at the time, and lobbied for the team to have a black coach. When the university instead brought in a white coach with a reputation for disrespecting black players, Haywood signed with the Denver Rockets of the ABA. He explained that his mother scrubbed floors for $10 a week and that his decision was one that anyone who loved his mother would make. In response, the press corps, which was mostly white, jumped to defend professional team ownership and the colleges that profited from keeping players like Haywood in school for as long as possible. The media began spreading fears about unruly black athletes who were trying to upend the system by signing professional contracts before they were ready and leaving their poor college programs in the lurch. Be the first to know when Jay Caspian Kong publishes a new piece. Reporting and commentary on today's biggest political and cultural debates. Email address. By signing up, you agree to our user agreement and privacy policy and cookie statement. Haywood spent the first years of his professional career entangled in several contract disputes and a lawsuit that made it to the Supreme Court, the court ruled in his favor. He was part of a movement of players who, inspired by black radical protest, began to advocate for more choice in where and when they played, and for a bigger share of the money they generated. Another such player was Oscar Robertson, who later went on to lead the NBA Players Association. Robertson started his career with the Cincinnati Royals because he had played college ball at the University of Cincinnati and the league at the time allowed teams to absorb anyone who played collegiately in their region. In the era before free agency, the league's reserve clause bound Robertson to the Royals for the entirety of his career. After he won the league's MVP award, in 1964, Robertson was denied a raise in his second contract. So he did the only thing he could, he threatened to withhold his labor until he got a better deal. The competition between the ABA and the NBA provided players with a form of leverage, and salaries rose as owners scrambled to keep their stars. But in 1970, talks about a merger between the two leagues, which would effectively destroy players' negotiating power, began to intensify. Robertson, by then the head of the Players' Association, filed an antitrust lawsuit against the two leagues to block the merger and won an injunction, the leagues wouldn't merge until 1976, when the modern NBA was born. Public response to Robertson and the players' union was predictable, especially from the press, which called the players all the usual things, entitled, greedy, and wax nostalgic for a fictitious past when players took small salaries and did it all for the love of the game and its fans. In the late 70s, NBA's television ratings dropped, and some franchises struggled with attendance. From an economic perspective, these struggles made sense, the league was still going through growing pains from the recent merger of the NBA and the ABA. 
but according to the press, the problem was player behavior and their sense of entitlement. The league was reeling from the fallout of an incident involving Kermit Washington, a black player for the Los Angeles Lakers who, in the middle of a game in 1977, punched and seriously injured Rudy Tomjanovic, a white forward for the Houston Rockets. Three years later, Bernard King, one of the league's biggest stars, was arrested in Utah for cocaine possession and forcible sexual abuse. These high-profile incidents, which shocked the country, led to a great deal of questioning, much of it seemingly warranted, about what, exactly, was happening in professional sports. In 1980, Chris Cobbs, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, published a story about rampant cocaine use in the N.B.A. and estimated that somewhere between 45 and 75 percent of players were on drugs. It was true that some players had recently been arrested for possession, but the story mostly reflected the way that the media, the league's white owners, and many basketball fans looked at a league in which 75% of the players were black and therefore too flashy, too street, too undisciplined, and, most important, far too ungrateful for the opportunity they had been given to play basketball for hundreds of thousands, even millions, of dollars. Run Stetler begins and ends blackball with a discussion of Cobbs's article and the league's cocaine panic. She argues that blackball players' use of cocaine, an expensive drug typically associated with white celebrities, jet-setters, and professionals, was yet another reminder of their undeserved fortune. At a time when the rest of the United States was still reeling from a decade of stagflation and economic recession, NBA players had become some of the highest-paid professional athletes in the world. Many of them, Cobbs noted, came from unstable families in inner-city ghettos and could not seem to handle their sudden wealth. Also, as one anonymous source told Cobbs, the players are so street-smart, their sophistication is just below that of a hardened convict. They know every angle on how to get women and drugs. They are so far ahead of the security men it's unbelievable. They know every hustle. The chaos in the NBA seemed to mirror the chaos, crime, and violence in the streets of American cities. In both cases, young black men were to blame. It should surprise no one that demands by black labor for fair contracts were met with a backlash that played into racist tropes about laziness, entitlement, and lack of discipline. It should also be a surprise to nobody that, at a time when cocaine was flooding into the U.S. seeking wealthy users, NBA players would be among them. What Run Stetler illustrates is how all those facts are related, not just in terms of the accepted narrative, but also in terms of the way the league exercises power over players. As has been true across American history, Run Stetler shows, the ugliest instances of racist caricature and abuse come either when black workers ask for equal pay and better working conditions or when business struggles and management need someone to blame. This was true in the 70s and the 90s, when the sport struggled to gain or retain fans. What makes Blackball one of the best and most politically truthful books on basketball is that it resists the alluring, simplistic narratives that often emerge in a business in which the worker is the product and also happens to be world famous. It's tempting to attribute every upswing and downturn in the NBA's business to the actions of individual players, whether it be the wattage of Magic Johnson's smile saving the Lakers from too many years of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's star workmanship or the league's popularity dipping when Allen Iverson brought hip-hop to the league. Runstetler's feat is showing that the public narratives that emerge about the NBA do not simply come from what fans see on the court or even what players do in their free time. Their source, instead, is a decades-long battle between black labor and white ownership.
The NBA and the press that covers the league have certainly changed since the 70s and the 80s. Star players make hundreds of millions of dollars and can largely choose where they want to play after their rookie contracts are done. The media has also matured. There are now many more forums for discussing basketball, whether it's analytics-driven podcasts such as Nate Duncan's Dunked On, interview shows such as All the Smoke, which features the former players Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson, or your usual sports network yelling shows. There are hundreds of YouTube and TikTok channels dedicated to NBA highlight reels. If you want to follow the league entirely by charts, there are several websites that will provide you with every metric you could possibly want. This abundance, however, has not meaningfully changed the media's relationship with the league and its owners. The basketball press exists mostly to promote the league, it tends to be in sympathy with the management, not the players. In my experience reporting on the NBA, I can tell you that there is no other entity that I have encountered, including politicians, police departments, and other sports leagues, that is more needlessly hostile to criticism or which harasses journalists with such consistency. The NBA's information ecosystem does not run on investigations but, rather, on microscoops about meaningless player transactions that get fed to celebrity reporters who mostly seem to exist on Twitter. Not only does this mean that sources, who are always unnamed, retain almost unimpeachable power because they are the fountain from which all the valuable information flows but it also elbows out nearly anyone who wants to hold the lead to account or even cover it from a business or investigative angle. The league is doing just fine with its mostly tamed press corps and can therefore just ignore any requests from investigative journalists or anyone who might be asking the wrong questions. Last summer, the Boston Celtics suspended their coach, Ayami Udoka, for a season for unspecified sexual misconduct. In the days that followed, members of the NBA media wrung their hands and ultimately decided to reserve judgment until the details came to light. But somehow those details still have not been reported in any major outlet, and Udoka is being talked about for head coaching vacancies across the league. Surely the NBA press corps is not so incompetent that it can't find a single publishable detail about a high-profile story involving a famous coach and one of the most storied franchises in the league. The more likely explanation is that a lot of people do know the story but have decided not to run it because doing so would jeopardize their standing with their anonymous sources and, perhaps, the league itself. Consider that much of the NBA press now covers the game from the perspective of a general manager tasked with fitting a bunch of player salaries within an arbitrary salary cap that benefits the owner. Contracts are called good or favorable when they save the team money, far less time is spent asking more salient questions like why the salary cap is set where it is, or, perhaps more pointedly, why any fan in their right mind would root for a billionaire owner to shortchange the athlete who actually is going out to perform for them. Instead, the media simply accepts the parameters that the league has set. There's also a bit of a paradox here, though it's not particularly difficult to resolve. The modern NBA media is far more progressive in what it says about race, it considers player perspectives far more than it did in the 70s. It gets in line with the NBA's desire to market itself as the progressive and youthful alternative to the brutality of the National Football League, both on the field and in its business, and the staid nostalgia of Major League Baseball. The media has done this in a variety of ways, both earned and seemingly spontaneous. The coaches Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr have given lengthy statements about the horrors of police brutality. 
The league reserves a large slate of games for Martin Luther King Day and produces a glut of televised segments about the history of the civil rights movement. As the George Floyd protests were taking place across the country, the league, which had sequestered itself inside a bubble at Walt Disney World to finish its season, covered just about every bit of space that could be spotted by a television camera with Black Lives Matter slogans, including on the back of player jerseys. But the league also makes sure that such expressions are kept within the boundaries of what it finds acceptable. When Jacob Blake was shot by a police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin, players on the Milwaukee Bucks, led by the point guard George Hill, refused to play in the bubble and nearly prompted the closest thing to a wildcat strike the league has ever seen in recent history. The strike ultimately ended with an assist from Barack Obama. As protests spread around the world, the NBA games went on. The central argument of black ball is that expressions of personal politics are nice, but largely irrelevant, as long as the relationship between labor and management maintains the same structure and incentives, a league with a Black Lives Matter logo on the court will still place all the blame on its players when things go wrong. As the Players Association and the league prepare to negotiate their next collective bargaining agreement after the end of the 2023-24 season, we should heed Ron Stetler's advice to regard every story that comes out about load management, every scandal, and every leak with a great deal of skepticism. The league has earned that much. Diamond Suit